Hi everyone, this is Hita Unnikrishnan for the In Common podcast, a show that explores the careers and research of academics and practitioners studying relationships between humans and the environment. In today's episode, I'm talking with a close friend and fellow scholar, Dr. Sarah Bezan. Sarah is a scholar of environmental humanities currently employed as a lecturer in literature and the environment at the Radical Humanities Laboratory at University College Cork in Ireland. Previously, she was a postdoctoral research associate at the Leverhulme Centre for Anthropocene Biodiversity in the University of York within the United Kingdom. Sarah and I first met when we both received a British Academy-funded Newton International Fellowship hosted by the University of Sheffield. It was here, during many recreational walks that we took to explore this new city that we had begun to call home, that I learned first of Sarah's fascinating work on evolution and de-extinction. In our conversation today, we chat about how participating in a paleodig and actually uncovering a Mosasaur skeleton sparked in her a curiosity that led to her current engagement with making sense of extinction. We spoke about artistic representations of extinct animals, such as Harry Callio's representation of the dodo bird on an island in Mauritius, or Mark Tion's ichthyosaur installation, and how they manipulate imaginaries surrounding the temporal and spatial boundaries of that extinct species. In describing these imaginaries, we discuss the idea of animal atopias, a term she coined to refer to those placeless places surrounding extinction, where the animal exists not on a spatially defined space, but a constructed one, evoking a nostalgia for what once was. We spoke about Sarah's experiences on the Galapagos Islands, where she studied the taxidermic specimen of Lonesome George, the last representative of the Pinta Island tortoises, and her observation that the extinct body is essentially an exploded one. This further raises questions about what it means to be the last representative of a species and the responsibility that death places upon such individuals. We spoke about how practices of taxidermy and museum curatorship are essentially performative designed to evoke a specific emotion or knowledge, rendering those aspects hyper-visible while subsuming others. We also discussed de-extinction projects such as the Jurassic World-like attempts at reviving the woolly mammoth, or even theoretical ideas of recreating Neanderthals as proposed by George Church, and how these are all ways in which we attempt to revive prehistoric fantasies of the human, a fantasy nevertheless that is separate from the idea of the modern human. We ended our chat with some reflections on interdisciplinary research and the responsibility that early early career scholars such as ourselves are placed with when we attempt to straddle multiple schools of thought. Talking with Sarah is always a joy and to me this conversation was no exception, not least because it was great to unpack her work and understand it a bit more than what I've done previously. As always with these chats, it's also an opportunity to engage with something completely unfamiliar to me and as such is a very valuable experience. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as we did recording it. So hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, like I said, it's the first time I'm interviewing a very close friend on the podcast. So this is going to be a lot of fun, I suppose. Uh, Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Hi. I always enjoy having a conversation with you. Um, I think to kick us off, I was thinking, so I was, I was reminded a lot about my own experiences with uh, thinking about extinct animals or going to be extinct animals when I was reading some of the articles you sent me. So I was remembering how I think I was a kid at that point of time. Um, and dad had got this entire set of, you know, encyclopedias that 
that he had got, which is called Childcraft or something. And in there, I think there was this mention of Lonesome George um, as one of the last representatives of his, um, you know, lineage or his species and so on. And I remember going up and saying such a sad thing, you know, I mean, and then and then I was reading your article where you talk about how uh, the whole taxidermic uh, rep, uh, mounting of Lonesome George today is evocative or is meant to evoke visceral responses in people um, as to here's a last member of a species and this is where extinction is leading us to and so on. Um, and I was just thinking about how much it resonated with what I was saying. But I think we'll talk more about that a little later. I think mm-hmm. to kick us off, Sarah, could you, I think very briefly, I guess, describe what you see yourself as, as in what is your identity as an academic? Well, I'm definitely working across the arts and sciences, but I am myself uh, a literature scholar. So the PhD that I did was in literature um, and it's coming out hopefully next year in a book called Dead Darwin, Necroecologies and Neo-Victorian Culture. Um, But yeah, I'm definitely um, a literature scholar, but I've been working in quite interdisciplinary environments since the completion of my PhD in 2017. So I've been at the University of Sheffield Animal Studies Research Center, which is based in the School of English, but it has directors and a larger sort of board that are across the social sciences and humanities. And then today I am at the University of York's Anthropocene, Leverhulme Center for Anthropocene Biodiversity which is quite an interdisciplinary space. It's a lot of um, natural scientists, conservationists, biologists, ecologists, um, and then some people like me who are in the humanities who are hanging out, kind of trying to figure out and decipher what everyone's talking about, and then try to communicate the value of what we do in the humanities. So it is quite an interdisciplinary environment that I find myself in. Nice. Um, so, So basically, to reiterate, you describe yourself as an environmental human humanities scholar and um, so your work really touches upon a whole lot of animal stories right so where did that interest come from I mean you said you mentioned you had you'd done your PhD at the University of Winnipeg right University of Alberta University of Alberta you live in Winnipeg yes I live in Winnipeg yes Yes. yeah Um, so uh, but where did this interest in looking at de-extinction and uh, animal studies pop up um, what was that origin story to use the lingo of in common podcast? <laughs> um, okay. So the thing that really, really kind of kicked off my interest in extinct animals was near the end of my PhD, I decided to take a paleo dig course through the Canadian fossil discovery Ooh. center. And the Canadian fossil discovery center is located not very far at all from Winnipeg where I was living at the time. It's, um, along the Pembina Escarpment. So it's prairie, but there's these sort of geological spaces where the embankment opens up and you can see all the stratified layers. Um, So I took this paleo dig course and I was the only person to sign up for it because it was the very beginning of spring, kind of beginning of summer. um, And there really wasn't very many students or any kids there. It was just me. So it was so super fun. I went with the paleo dig guide and this is an area that used to be the Western Interior Seaway. So there's giant sea turtles, there's plesiosaurs, there's mosasaurs, and a number of really, really amazing Cretaceous period animals that are buried in the soil. And I just so happened to pick a site that contained a mosasaur, which is an 80 million year old 
you know, super scary carnivorous animal. And I was with my guide using those little like dental tools and brushes. And we're, we're pulling back the soil to reveal, um, I think it was 11 vertebrae of this mosasaur over the course of the afternoon. And just watching those bones start to dry in the sun and change color, you know, it was just incredible moment where I realized that I, I didn't know what to think about extinction. I didn't know what to do with this very tangible material experience that I had had. And so what happened was after the paleo dig was over, we went back to the Canadian Fossil Discovery Center and I started wandering around the museum looking at all the, these exhibitions and particularly all of the scientific illustrations of the Mosasaur. And these had been all produced by a Canadian paleo artist named Julius Satoni. Mm-hmm. So I wrote to him and was kind of just asking some questions. And really that's kind of what kicked off my interest in extinction, but also in art science, the, the cross-pollination, cross-pollination, what's the word I'm looking for? Cross-pollination mm-hmm. of arts and sciences and the ways in which Scientists communicate their findings to artists and artists translate that into an image. And that image is then presented to public audiences. So that became the basis for a bid to the British Academy for a Newton International Fellowship, which was successful. And that was what began my interest in looking at sort of the art and science of extinction and then more generally de-extinction processes. Brilliant. And yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I'm I've always been fascinated with fossils, but yeah, never actually experienced a dig and get a mosasaur vertebrae on top of it. That's, yeah, that's some incredible story. But Sarah, I've also been hearing you talk uh, about some of these terms um, and also read some of these terms that that you use in your work. And maybe for the next few questions, I think I'd probably ask you what uh, you mean when you say certain terms, um, largely because I guess we are not having a very uh, environmental humanities focused audience group around here. Um, so you mentioned animal studies at some point, or maybe I mentioned animal studies uh, in terms of your own identity. So could you could you unpack what you mean when you say animal studies uh, as a discipline? Because I think I also want to come back to this at one point uh, towards the end when uh, where I want to talk to you about about how you'd like to see this established as a new field of inquiry as well. But, um, but mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, so animal studies within the humanities is basically broken into two branches. And I'm really oversimplifying here, but there's human animal studies, which looks at sort of literary, cultural, historical, and other humanities-based approaches to human-animal relationships. And the other is critical animal studies, which tends to be a bit more politically aligned and is really focused around the inequalities um, of animals and the ways in which they have been relegated to the sidelines and oppressed um, in various ways. So there's certain liberation methodologies and practices in place for critical animal studies. So I, I find both to be very you know, fascinating fields of inquiry, but I probably would associate myself more along the lines of human animal studies. Um, and so that's... Um, that's not necessarily grouped under the umbrella of environmental humanities, but I think for the purposes of our conversation today, I think you could say that animal studies has its own trajectory and it also its own beginnings, but it is interested in human animal relationships. And as, you know, as environmental humanities continues to grow, it does take a lot of its lineage from animal studies. Yeah. So talking about human 
animal relationships. Uh, another term that I came across when you were looking, when I was looking at your article on the dodo birds, um, is the idea of extinction imaginaries, um, and to my mind, it also brought to uh, you know, uh, brought, at least brought me to get reminded or get got me reminded. What am I even speaking? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it got me reminded of. Uh, the imaginary ideas that we use as well in creating, say, for example, environmental imaginaries or social imaginaries and so on about infrastructure, about people, about nature and so on. Um, and I was wondering what your understanding or what your, what, how would you uh, dif- look at the term extinction imaginaries uh, in your work? I would say that my work is indebted to the scholarship of Ursula Heise. She's a scholar who kind of works a lot with the term extinction imaginaries. I would recommend you look at her book uh, on the subject. Um, And essentially for people like Ursula Heisa and myself, the interest in extinction imaginaries is really based around narratives, narrative forms, visual representations, and the ways in which those representations circulate in culture. Cool. Um, Could you also tell us the name of this book by Ursula Heisa? I think it's called Extinction Imaginaries. It's called Imagining Extinction, the Cultural Meanings of Endangered Species. Imagining Extinctions. All right. We'll put a note of that. Um, the other term that I was I was looking at when uh, reading the same article on the, do- uh, on the dodo birds, and we'll come back to that article in a bit because I wanted to talk a bit about its parallel with the whole ideas of ecological discourses around charismatic species and so on. Um was the idea of animal borderlands, which you describe as uh, the borderlands that separate living, endangered, extinct, de-extinct animals. Could you expand a bit on that idea as well? And in relation to maybe a bit on your work on the dodo birds? Yeah, of course. So this article that you're referring to, it came out in this um, journal called Parallax, and it was in a special issue on animal borderlands. So I was trying to focus my conversation around the artist Hari Kaleo and his Dodo representations. And for me, the interest in Hari Kaleo in relation to animal borderlands was really around some of those natural scientific terms that we use to describe living and dead, um, extant and extinct. Um, and so the, the attempt for me was to try to also sort out the temporal and spatial boundaries of the Dodo. And what I used in the article to explain that theoretically was this term that I coined called animal atopias. So an animal atopia is kind of a placeless place. The island of Mauritius, where the dodo used to make its habitat, is now obviously devoid of dodo birds um, in principle. But actually, you know, of course, the dodo birds themselves are a part of the landscape. They are actually a part of the strata. If you were to dig, you would find some dodo bird remains. So the idea of an animal atopia kind of gestures to that liminal space, that kind of in-between space that exists between the fossil, which is a body. It's actually, you know, the skeletal remains of a body, but a fossil can also be part of the landscape. Um, And the thing that I find so interesting about an artist like Hari Kaleo is that he takes his dodo sculptures back to Mauritius and he sets them up in these kind of absurd, comic, imaginative poses and he puts them back in those spaces. And in that way, he kind of creates this moment where we can think about that in-betweenness 
mm-hmm. and imagine them as alive? What, what if they were still alive and what if we could come back to them? And similarly, I mean, this isn't a part of the article, but I just was speaking with someone recently who was about to finish their degree program in art history and art studies. And she's produced um, this really fascinating project with ceramic dodo bones that she's created. And alongside these bones, these dodo bones, she's also written a story about how the dodo went extinct in the 19th century, Hmm. not the 17th century or the 16th century. Um, in that sense, the the composition of this this falsehood, this narrative, is also meant to demonstrate the the kind of authority of the bones, but also the power of narrative mm. in intriguing us and kind of making us interested in you know in this story of the dodo's extinction. Um, so yeah, that's kind of for me what is what is interesting about animal borderlands and also the space of returning to the island of Mauritius to set up these dodo bird sculptures in a space that's already replete with dodo remains. Harry hmm. uh, Kalio's uh, work of art was essentially to recreate dodo sculptures and set them in the in the island where they once roamed free in in ways that evoked uh, a nostalgia for the lost landscape. Is that what I'm reading into this? Yeah, I think you can. You could easily say that. Okay, um, so I was also again. Uh, frankly, I loved reading those articles, both the articles that you sent me, and I also read other stuff that you had um, written. But um, something that struck me when I was reading this article on the dodo birds was uh, when you talk about how extinction choreographies of the dodo, uh, essentially all of these various ways in which the dodo gets represented or not represented um sort of overshadow the threat of continued biodiversity loss on the island um and to some extent you also talk about similar tropes when you talk about the article on lonesome george that we'll come to in a bit um and i was i was struck by the parallel between this idea that we have in mainstream ecological sciences which is you know, a continued focus on charismatic species, for example, the tiger or the elephant or the cheetah, and their declining numbers often overshadows the more uh, non-charismatic species, maybe like ants or frogs or snails, uh, and their role that, uh, on the role that they play within the ecosystem form and function. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how these parallels can be drawn uh, from your work as well? Yeah, and actually, this is a this is a good question um, around charisma, charismatic species and charisma in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I think charisma is one of those really difficult to define terms, but it's one that I think is more useful for thinking about culture and representations of extinction than it is for scientists and natural scientists. And the reason I say that is because um, I myself feel quite critical of charismatic species. I think. I think the the focus of my my second book, which will be about de-extinction in art and science and literature, um, is that these charismatic species are circulating in culture and getting a lot of visibility, and they're accruing meanings the more that they circulate. So the more that we see a woolly mammoth being represented as um, being revived, um, for example, in the Woolly Mammoth Revival Project, which just got, I think, 50 or $60 million in funding, so the, the woolly mammoth is, is already been circulated in, in culture quite a bit. 
but it's continually, you know, entering our field of vision. And that kind of builds on that charisma even further to the detriment of so many other species that are going extinct at a rapid pace. But I think the point is... Uh, can I just button and ask you what the Woolly Mammoth Project is for our listeners? Yes. So the Woolly Mammoth Revival Project is based at Harvard University and it's run by noted and somewhat controversial geneticist George Church. Um, he's an interesting man and I, and I think he's, you know, he's gotten a lot of um, funding to support this project of bringing back um, mammoths, so mammoth ele- mammoth elephant hybrids. So these are going to be appearing um, in the next five or six years, according to Colossal, which is this tech firm that has recently supported the Woolly Mammoth Revival Project with quite a lot of money. Sounds like Jurassic Park. It is. It is a bit like Jurassic Park. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So there's um, there's also another de-extinction proponent called Stuart Brand. And he plans to create this Pleistocene park where he wants a lot of these ice age mammals like the mammoth to repopulate and rewild and restore that space. Yeah, all of those, all of those narratives bring to mind Jurassic Park, of course, but also bring to mind something else that you've been talking about in your work, which is uh, this urge that we have to go back to uh, you know, primordial forms of nature that existed without human beings, but also in a space where human beings are. Um, and I was just, yeah, it's, it's a very curious that we have this constant urge to do or replicate or go back to the past. I see it a lot in my own work, right? When, when people talk about lakes, uh, or, you know, the, the extinct lakes of Bangalore, there's a sense of nostalgia, let's go back to what was. But very often, that's not something that's possible, given, of course, the fact that a the landscape has changed so much. And for example, in this case, bringing back extinct Pleistocene animals into the Anthropocene, if you want to call it that way, again, poses with it so many challenges, right, of power, of, of dispossession, of all kinds of these various uh, social challenges, societal challenges, and of course, the fact that you're introducing completely new species into a landscape that was devoid of them for a very long time. It's like, it's like the whole narrative of what is it called? Uh, uh, invasive species all over again, right? Is this George Monbiot? Uh, invasive species basically is a very ecological concept, which is, uh, which is the idea that uh, plants or basically any species, flora, fauna, introduced into a landscape can, uh, because because they do not have natural predators in that landscape, can overthrow or dethrone uh, native populations. So lantana, for example, is one such uh, plant that was introduced into India, which is kind of overtaking a lot of tropical forests and so on. Um, and I, again, I'm seeing a lot of these parallels with ecological narratives and what you're saying right now. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts around that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, invasive species, the idea around like nativity and mm. I guess purity, the purity of species um, as well. Because when you're oh, thinking yeah, we're about... We're having chimeras here, right? In the sense. Chimeras, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, the mammophant is a chimera and there is some interesting discussion around 
I guess the the ways in which someone like George Church presents himself as an author. So his co-authored book, Regenesis, is is a kind of trope, right? So the Genesis is a biblical illusion. He's referring to himself as God. He's referring to himself and to the process of creation and to to de-extinction itself being a kind of recreative process in which he is an omnipotent recreator. Mm-hmm. So there is something fascinating to me about the way in which a geneticist like George Church thinks of himself as an author and thinks of the de-extinction of the woolly mammoth as a new story, a new chapter in the story of the woolly mammoth. Yeah, yeah. And I guess it also comes down to something else that, again, struck me when I was reading your work. There's a lot of things that struck me about reading your work, I suppose. Uh, But um, this idea of performance that comes in. Um, and I think this is probably a good time to also talk about a bit about your uh, work with the Galapagos, uh, the Pintail and Tortoise, um, Lonesome George, who was the last representative of his species, the Pintail and Tortoise, the giant Galapagos Tortoise, and all the other names that he is called by. Uh, and your work on looking at the taxidermic preservation of uh, these, these uh, this particular animal. And uh, I was also listen, reading up some of your other work. Um, I think this was on taxidermy. It was an article um, on taxidermic forms and fictions in configurations. And something that, I mean, I think what, what came to me in reading all of your work in, you, you know, in conjunction with each other was that there seemed to be a a discourse around the different ways in which uh Curate, museum curatoring, curatoring of of uh, extinct animals or taxidermic mounting or um, endling taxidermic uh, practices or the flow of taxidermic material across the globe. There seems to be something around why those practices are the way they are in the sense of, I mean, I could, I could with my very broad non-environmental humanities reading of 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 your work i could see for example there were there were tropes about showcasing the first or the last of a species of evoking the fact that hey look here's something that that was the very first of her her kind of creations a dolly for example or or the last of the species a pintail and tortoise um as a sort of performance to bring out these narratives, right? To bring out what we feel is the most important distinguishing characteristic of that particular species or to sort of subsume other kinds of narratives. Uh, for example, the fact that uh, the Galapagos, the Pinta Island tortoise existed in his own ecosystem, which consisted of other tortoises who might have mated and reproduced and had children and had eggs. Um, and, you know, lived and thrived in that population until they were made into turtle soup, right? Um, or to a certain falsity of expression, right? You would talk about taxidermic practice as being an, an art on, in falsity as well. Um, to render something as being hyper-visible. So some some aspect as being hyper. Everyone knows Lonesome George. But do we know the same about the last dodo bird that went extinct? You know? And I was just thinking about and I guess this also relates to some of these very ecological social ecological arguments that we have about power for example some some forms of power are rendered more more visible and others are subsumed um, 
and i was kind of drawing these parallels and i was wondering if you could talk a bit more about about these practices maybe start with this article on lonesome george uh and your experience with the galapagos island and then we can proceed into this idea of power and and uh what is visible and not yeah of course i mean for our listeners who haven't had a chance to read this article in configurations which is a journal for science technology and literature um the endling taxidermy of Lonesome George was pretty fascinating to me. Um, and I decided to go on an actual field work, which is, you know, not really all that familiar to me as, a, as someone in the environmental humanities. I don't typically get on a plane and go see things in person, but this is what I did with Lonesome George. So I was interested in looking at the ways in which the Charles Darwin Research Station set up the path of the tortoise, leading all of their viewers and all of their um, attendees towards the Hall of Hope where Lonesome George's extinct museum taxidermy was on display. And I did some comparisons with that with the American Museum of Natural History where Lonesome George was on display for a little while before he came back to the Galapagos Islands for good to stay. And the American Museum of Natural History's placards and the materials that they presented to the audience in terms of being historically grounded and informative, the American Museum of Natural History did a much better job, in my opinion, of explaining all of this history around Lonesome George. And in the article, I talk a little bit about the California Academy of Sciences expedition that happened a decade or a couple decades earlier um, that used that picked up some of other other Lonesome George's other relatives and preserve them. So those taxidermy remains are actually available and kept within the California Academy of Sciences. Um, But there was no information about this at the Charles Darwin Research Station. And I found that kind of curious. And I think my what I ended up arguing in the article is that the the affective weight, the emotional weight of the loss of this species is being represented in this endling taxidermy of Lonesome George. And this has has a lot of potential. So I really appreciate Dolly Jorgensen, who is an environmental historian. I, I appreciate Dolly Jorgensen's um, explanation of the endling, the, the last individual of a species, and the power of the endling in terms of telling a story and grounding us in an individual loss that is also representative of a species loss. That, that is, I think, quite useful in thinking about what endling taxidermy does. But my argument is actually that an endling body is a body exploded. It's a body that has been rendered down through various processes. So the bones were kept by the American Museum of Natural History. The skin was sent over to this other taxidermist who kind of did all this processes with chemicals and stuff to preserve the skin and mounted it on an armature and then, you know, sent it all the way back to the Galapagos, where his semen and other sort of materials, specimen DNA preserves, were kept over at the homeland, or the, um, I guess that's the Ecuadorian homeland. So so the endling body of, of Lonesome George looks like it's this intact, singular entity, but it is in fact exploded and entered into all of these other processes around global genomics and remaining, or I guess connecting the DNA with a larger system of information around that species so that we can potentially think about backbreeding or replicating or cloning 
Lonesome George in the future. But of course, that technology doesn't exist just yet, maybe in a few decades. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a sense, it's also placing the burden of extinction on an individual, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And that's what that's what Dolly Jorgensen would argue. And I think that there's there's a there's a way in which we have to kind of think about the way that natural scientists work and the way in which environmental humanities scholars like myself work, because I'm interested in, in the narratives. I'm interested in, in the ways in which these that the endling taxidermy of Lonesome George is also kind of hyperbolically optical. It's hypervisual. It's super, super tangible and present for those that enter into the Hall of Hope. There's nothing else in that room except for the extinct museum taxidermy. That's the thing you're supposed to see. That's what you're supposed to respond to. That's, you know, the thing that you're supposed to have feelings about. Um, and so I think it's really important to consider the ways in which that museum exhibition fails and also succeeds in, in drawing in audiences and helping us to actually understand what extinction is. And I've always thought it was so curious that the hall, that it was called the hall of hope. To me, there wasn't really a whole lot hopeful about it yeah. because de-extinction is still for reptiles and especially it's still decades away. And maybe those tools and technologies are on their way, but there's nothing that really feels tangible about hope in that sense. And in that moment, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm curious. Uh, you mentioned something about how uh, the museum, uh, the in in the Galapagos Islands, is both something that's representative of a failure to draw in audiences and uh, and a success in drawing audiences. Uh, could you unpack that a bit further? What do you mean when you say failure? What does what does it not? Uh, entice what kind of audiences does it not entice what what is missing out of the narratives that is there in uh, the region so what i mean by that is that there's still hundreds of thousands of visitors to the charles darwin research station every year and so of course there are lots of visitors um but but in terms of the success or failure of that representation i mean it's kind of not really unless I did some quantitative analysis to find out how people felt before they saw the Hall of Hope and how people felt afterwards, it's impossible to know how effective it was at moving people emotionally and getting them to understand and become more educated around biodiversity loss. But I would say that because there is so little natural historical information along the path of the tortoise, which is that space that leads you to the Hall of Hope, I would say that it doesn't seem as if there's a there's much opportunity there or there could have been more of an opportunity there to educate audiences a bit more about what happened with Lonesome George and with his species line. Which leads me to this this question that I touched upon earlier, right, which is all of these practices seem to be geared towards making something visible or not, something um crafting certain narratives around what's important and what's not for an audience to know. Um, and in a sense, I guess it is also about crafting a narrative about what we as a human species tends to place a lot of weight on in terms of representing or not of a species or uh, of a population or a community or of or of ourselves generally, right? In 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 uh, uh, thing hindsight. And I was wondering what your thoughts are uh, really about 
these representations and what they do to our understanding of larger issues like you mentioned of extinction climate change um you know loss of um safe spaces within the ecosystem loss of biodiversity and so on in a sense what is what what do you think exposing these narratives uh, in a sense to a non environmental humanities person for example could do to aid our understanding of how we can develop better discourses um, it's i mean I, i guess it's a very there are different layers to that question but maybe we could just unpack a bit about what 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 are these different kinds of things that come out come across and what do they mean for conservation and efforts around conservation Well, I mean, this is an interesting question because I believe that the social sciences and the humanities share a common problem, and that problem is abstraction. When you have a lot of data, when you have a lot of um I guess global scale problems like climate change, like biodiversity loss, it's incredibly hard sometimes to render down those abstractions into something tangible and meaningful. for our own scholarship but also for public audiences and that's why I do think that narratives offer one way into that problem so for example lonesome george um he's an individual animal of a species that has been lost and so i think there's a lot of power in that in telling that story of that loss um and what it does is it kind of takes that abstraction and it makes it tangible it makes it materially present and it allows us to focalize our emotions and i think grief is something that can be really overwhelming but if we have something some sort of a i guess a story that we can connect to mm-hmm. and it allows us to process that grief and i think once we do that then we we begin to open ourselves up to learning more about biodiversity loss um in its larger on its larger scale Mm, that's a very powerful statement you just made there about opening ourselves to grief and channeling our grief to a particular focal point um so that we can move beyond it into hope into creating narratives of hope well and into understanding i don't i don't know necessarily that i mean i think it depends on the individual species and um the location the geographical location of that species etc but I mean I do think that narratives are really important in beginning that process of inspiring us to be more curious, inviting us to ask more questions. And for me it was just about I didn't know anything about the Pinta Island tortoise and all of a sudden I found myself in the Galapagos totally surrounded with all of these amazing books and archives and um and the actual taxidermy specimen itself and I learned a lot about it. So for me that that really emotionally weighty presence of the of the taxidermy form invited me to learn so much and i do think that that can happen with certain audiences but i think that museums have a responsibility in facilitating that curiosity and driving it towards mm. understanding and public recognition yeah yeah absolutely i mean you mentioned the term narratives and uh, i do engage for some of my own work in looking at narratives around around uh, you know different ideas or nostalgia of lost lakes and stuff like that but then maybe for a person who is not so cued into the idea of a narrative 
how would you say one would go about looking at these narratives and trying to understand the narratives that are built around a particular place because i do think at some level these are very important considerations you know i mean often what we see and what is behind the scenes are very different uh you know in various things it could be anything so social environmental relationships it could be it could be relationships about uh people and natural resources it could be anything anything really that that makes us thrive function as a social ecological system um there are often things that are going on behind the scenes and often given the fact that we are such a pervasive presence on this planet um they are often human mediated so in a sense looking at these narratives is i think very important but then it's also quite difficult to do that right i mean how would one how would one start to think about narratives do you have it's a perfect question actually because there's the work that i'm in right now in the field of extinction studies had its origin in the australian working group the extinction working group in australia with people like tom van doren the late deborah bird rose and matthew shrulu and michel bastian and a lot of these scholars are working across the social science and humanities and so for them storytelling is also kind of an ethnographic practice so for example tom van doren and deborah bird rose have written a few articles and chapters about uh, monk seals they've written about um extinct birds or extinct in the wild birds in hawaii so what they do is they actually kind of go to those spaces and do some field work do some interviewing of field biologists and kind of make inquiries around it um and then use that as a way to kind of draw back those narratives into theory and into other kinds of representations um in my own work around extinction studies in lonesome george and in other other chapters that i've written i've been really drawn to david herman's concept of bionarratology bionarratology is something he talks about in his book on narratology beyond the human which is something i would recommend it's particularly the coda section of that book essentially bionarratology is contrasting the temporally and spatially bounded events like the death of lonesome george with larger species level uh phenomena so species scale phenomena and individual animal events so bionarratology could be a very useful concept for someone who's kind of just hedging their way into thinking about narratives in in and around environmental science and social science. I would highly recommend just thinking about how to, you know, reading a bit about narratology, reading a little bit about um for example ecolinguistics. It might be a way in which to tie some of those theoretical terms and practices and apply them in your own research. Yeah, interesting. Thanks. Um good recommendations to check out as well. Um I was I was curious again um so I was reading again some of your work on fossilization for the the power of fossils and so on and I guess I'm circling back to this this um uh, idea that we had about charismatic species and how the 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 what do we call it? concentrated interest in charismatic species often subsumes other forms of um of of uh, Oh, biodiversity and biodiversity loss that might be happening and you kind of make a certain similar argument again with with this idea of the fossils um 
and the idea that in focusing on fossils as our sole or rather predominant entity of interest we often do not we often overlook i guess some of these other other forms of animal remains and i guess that ties in neatly with your current edited book i suppose um on animal remains um and and the stories that they can tell us about species loss and change about a species presence in time and space uh and about the relationships that they build with both their world and our world so to speak because we're looking at extinct animals around um and i was wondering if you could talk a bit about about a uh, well let's start with that uh, about the idea of fossils and these animal remains that you talk about and then we can hedge into the book yeah that sounds good actually i mean i think i would i would start with the edited volume just to explain briefly for the listeners what it is so this is Animal Remains, it's a co-edited volume in the Routledge series around culture and the non-human. And the beginning, the introduction of the of the volume is focalized around this installation by artist Mark Dion. And what it is, is this incredible installation of a ichthyosaur, so a prehistoric extinct animal. But he's rendered it or made it out of plastic and placed it on this beachy sort of sandy beach in the installation and out of the guts of this extinct animal are all of these natural scientific objects and paraphernalia so natural scientific manuals and lamps and just other kinds of objects that you would use if you were going on a natural scientific expedition and um, the reason that we found this pretty fascinating was just because it is kind of a living rendering of a fossil but it's put into contemporary terms. So the kind of um, image, I guess, that we're used to of seeing in frequently now of animals being washed up or sort of beached on the beach with plastic in their guts has become a really important moment for us to think about the ways in which fossil fuels, um, of which microplastics come from, right? Um, how those things have been circulating. And in that sense, they've really broken apart the time and scale of the Anthropocene, of this geological epoch that we're now in, where extinction is no longer something that happened a long time ago. um, And that feels very far away. It now feels very visceral, but it's also happening at a scale and speed that's almost invisible. We sometimes just can't imagine or fully grasp the extent to which species are going extinct and all the ones that are non-charismatic, especially, we're not always aware of them. And so I really like this, um, this piece by Mark Dion because it is kind of this, this sort of refreshing example of the fossil becoming lively and really pushing itself into our time and space in our current moment of environmental catastrophe. So yeah, the fossil, I think, is an important example of, you know, the ways in which geological thinking has become important, um, not only in the social sciences, but in the humanities as well. And obviously, I'm working at a Leverhulme Center for Anthropocene Biodiversity. The Anthropocene is a concept that a lot of my colleagues find useful, but we're also quite critical of it as well, because it is often so anthropocentric. It's so focused on our own temporal biases But obviously, extinction is not an unnatural phenomenon. It's just happening at an unnatural rate right now because of 
human-driven activities. And the fossil really brings those complicated narratives to the fore. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it reminds me of something that we get told as kids, um, you know, because um, when we grow up in India, a lot of our water comes from wells, um, ancient aquifers. Um, well, not not the open wells, the deep, the 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 bore wells or the tube wells that sort of sink deep down and into the deeper aquifers, and essentially what you're drinking is fossils. Uh, and we get told that we get told that we are drinking pretty much the the excreta of animals that left long ago uh, to put a yeah a sense of how ancient we these processes are and so on, but. I'm also interested, and and I guess throughout this conversation, we've been talking about literary representations of of nature, of extinction, of uh, you know the loss of species, and what and how that gets perceived in broader narratives of conservation and so on. In a sense, we are talking about a different form of of nature writing, right? We are talking about about using nature in a certain sense to talk about nature, right? Whether we are talking about, you know, uh, the taxidermic specimens, for example, or I think there was another article of yours where uh, you describe an experiment that people had of, uh, or an artistic experiment that a couple of people had about uh, burying uh, Charles Darwin's origin of species into in, in a garden for a year or uh, in a forest for a year and then looking at looking at what is happening uh, in that process uh, sort of like an analogy to Charles Darwin's own body being uh, decomposed or wanting to be decomposed through worms and so on and I was just wondering about the power that such narratives hold uh, in communicating about about some of these very important topics really about species laws and conservation I was wondering if you had any thoughts around that um yeah so there's so what you're referring to is is the this project by Stephen Collis and Jordan Scott called Decomp I love this poetry collection it's so interesting as you say they took five copies of Darwin's On the Origin of Species and buried them in five distinct biogeoclimatic zones and just let them decay for a whole calendar year and then dug them up later and created found poetry out of them. And in that sense, yeah, they're commenting on the ways in which um, Darwin himself has kind of decomposed over the years, but also just the ways in which, I guess, evolutionary narratives shift and change. And, um, and yeah, in terms of like storytelling and narratives for the present moment, my more recent work on de-extinction has kind of shifted more into a speculative mode of nature writing. Um, and I actually think that this is quite important. And I know we've talked about Jurassic Park briefly before. I'm not going to poo-poo Jurassic Park. I love Jurassic Park. <laughs> Obviously, I mean, bringing back dinosaurs isn't, isn't exactly possible. <laughs> we can't clone a dinosaur because their DNA is degraded too far. But there's other species like the woolly mammoth where there are some reserves of um of viable DNA yeah and sort of viable DNA that they're using potentially Um, viable DNA yeah not for cloning but for gene editing purposes and for synthetic biology to make these mammoths Um, but I really like Jurassic Park as like kind of a popular cultural touchstone most people have watched the film franchise or they've read the novels and so they have a sense of what those narratives are about. And we all know that those novels or the films never end well. It's always a bad idea, right? 
<clears throat> but what interests me is that these narratives also feature family dramas. There's always a, a romantic couple that is created over the course of the film or of the novel. And I think the, the sort of the sexual politics of that have really become quite interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so the next project that I'm developing is called Sextinction, Reproducing Extinct Animals in a Biotechnological Age. And I'm going to refer back to Jurassic Park in the work of artist Maria Lux, for example. Maria Lux, L-U-X, if you want to look her up. Uh, she's got this incredible comic she wrote called Famous Monsters, and it has all these different endlings like Lonesome George or Martha, the last passenger pigeon. These are all little endlings that become alive again, and they asexually reproduce themselves in order to oppress their, or to kind of kill their human oppressors. Um, and so all of the sort of family dramas that are going on in Jurassic Park similarly play out in her comic as all of these these de-extinct candidate, de-extinction candidates come back to life to kill humans. And I think this is an important moment where we have to think about the abstract sexualities of biotechnology. If you think about George Church as the kind of father of these, these new mammoths, which are going to be likely produced using elephant surrogates or artificial wombs in the laboratory space, there is a sexual reproduction. There's a reproduction happening of those animals. And I think cultural touchstones like Jurassic Park or this famous Monsters comic um, by Maria Lux allow us to reconnect with those cultural touchstones and to engage public understanding and also enhance it. Because I think if publics already sort of have a misunderstood kind of understanding of, of what de-extinction is, some of these comics can actually remind us that this isn't just about cloning and it's not always a good idea. There's a way, way in which some of these texts and artistic representations can actually call those sexual dynamics, sexual and gender dynamics into question. And for me, they offer some really important questions to to sort of pursue when it comes to the risks and potentials of de-extinction science. Interesting. And I guess this is probably a big question and probably something that I guess I'm soliciting conversation on, I guess. Uh, I was talking, I think, day before yesterday to uh, another uh, scientist from the commons, uh, scientist practitioner from the commons uh, field. And... While I was looking at, you know, his work, I was also looking at your work because I was I was going to be, you know, talking to you today. And what struck me was there is a lot of similarity in some of the things we say or some of the narratives we draw. Let's put it that way. It's not it's not the methods. It's not the epistemologies. It is not the the actual doing of an experiment. But what comes out in terms of the broader arguments that we make about about various things, we talk about how power subsumes or renders invisible certain social relationships. You talk about how practices uh, render invisible certain things invisible or make other things hyper-visible. You talk about how, for example, Lonesome George is uh, in, in, in his curatorial display is rendered as an individual devoid of the collective Um, and a lot of common scholars talk about the collective uh, very often and this is a critique that I have of of this 
scholarship is uh, that there is insufficient attention paid to the individual as also being shaped by societal processes of inequity and so on. And I guess, I mean, and I guess I, I was reflecting on myself as a person who has uh, transitioned from the biological sciences into looking at the more uh, social environmental uh, space where I draw on some of my biological stuff, but also uh, do a lot of social science, uh, incorporate a lot of social science in my own work. And the critique that I've had, well, or in conversations that I've had where I've tried to draw, point out some of these similarities and patterns that we see across these various disciplines, uh, these various ways of knowing the world. Um, I guess I've often felt a certain discomfort because uh, very often as scholars, we tend not to see these things. Um, very often we tend to use terms, a lot of these ists that we come up with. Um, some of the examples I've had is, oh, why are you bringing a structuralist perspective into something else? Or why are you mixing positivist and constructivist approaches? Or, you know, or uh, this comes in from a completely different epistemology. How, why are we even using? And to my mind, there is a sense of, is there a way we can communicate across all of these ists that we set for ourselves? Um, as intellectual, uh, sitting on a high throne uh, group of people, to move beyond what separates us into trying to find where conversations can happen. Because, I mean, this particular conversation itself is something that that's incredible because I frankly do not know a lot of the literature that you're speaking of. But in, the, in, but in doing so, we are still managing to find these connections and have a conversation. I guess, and I'm not, again, I guess it's, it's, it's more of a conversational thing. What are the ways that we can continue to engage beyond, beyond these various perspectives that we have rooted ourselves in? Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts or any experiences uh, this was something that I've just been constantly thinking about. So I guess it just came out as we were talking and I was, I was constantly drawing parallels between my world and your world in a certain sense. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the two more, most important values in interdisciplinary conversations are curiosity and generosity. And you've been both, you've demonstrated both in the course of this conversation by being so, so curious and generous with reading my work and, and engaging with it so critically. And I really try to do my best with my own colleagues here at the University of York. And when I first began, I remember we were kind of just thinking about the Anthropocene and we decided to do this little workshop around the Anthropocene because I realized quite quickly that we weren't working from the same, sh we weren't working from the same language around what the Anthropocene meant. I was quite curious about what it is that the Anthropocene meant for someone else who is in the biological sciences versus someone who works in history versus someone who works in literature like me. So we did this, what is the, what is the Anthropocene workshop over the course of a couple of weeks, a couple of sessions. And I remember we did this one exercise that was based on around a Mentimeter. So we were all sitting around Zoom and I had a Mentimeter going and I, I asked everyone to think about what color is the Anthropocene? And everyone had such wildly different 
fascinating responses to this question. Some people said the Anthropocene was red because of the amount of wildfires that were spreading in certain areas. And they, of course, were interested in that because of their own research, right? And someone else said that it was blue because of all of the flooding of coastal areas. And of course, that was related to the kinds of work that they were doing around coastal flooding in other regions. And so for me, that's a good example of the way in which we can kind of find some equal footing, some kind of common ground to discuss what these things are and what they mean to us. And I mean, I think we've maybe all gotten sick of talking about the Anthropocene. There's kind of been an Anthropocene nomania moment that may have passed. I don't know. But, you know, certainly in my own field, people have been talking about the Thulocene and the Plantationocene. We have an endless number of scenes. There's an endless number of, <laughs> of terms, right, that people are using to challenge and constructively rework what the Anthropocene is. And that's because everyone, it it has to work differently for everyone based on what field they're in and what discipline they're in. But I think that there's exercises, there's ways in which we can work collectively to generate a shared vocabulary and to be quite open and honest with one another about what it is, what the limits and what the potentials are of using those terms when we are sitting down to discuss an idea with other people. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's... Sometimes I also think within creating shared vocabularies, we might also not be siloing ourselves, but um, because, I mean, I like I said, I was talking to someone else the other day, uh, and he had um, this amazing work on commons um, in which he charts out a certain vocabulary for the idea of commoning. And one of the thoughts that I had was in doing that exercise itself, which is incredibly useful, which is um, which is great because you it, it, it sets out uh, a language to describe exactly what is going on in the process. Are we also rendering ourselves closed to incorporating ideas from other spaces? Um, unless, of course, we developed a shared adaptive response adaptive vocabulary but again that's throwing a lot of words into it but (laughs) well it's I think it's also asking a lot of early career researchers like ourselves to have to straddle these interdisciplinary spaces and still produce high quality peer-reviewed articles and books that come out that are meant to make a critical intervention in our own fields I don't think it's our responsibility completely as early career scholars to hold all of that, the burden of that. I think it's a part of, you know, I think senior scholars and more established faculty members have a role to play in validating and supporting those kinds of interdisciplinary conversations while also allowing us as early career researchers to produce this high published, these high quality peer-reviewed articles that will make an impact in our fields. Absolutely true. And I think it's also, it's a, I guess it's also the duty of all of us, I suppose, across career stages to sort of call out the practices that have led to this uh, perpetuating dis- differences, difference-forming silo creation within disciplines or across disciplines that, that we are constantly struggling, right, in our own identities as scholars. Um, 
and and to probably stop the perpetuation of some of these things as much as we can uh, not saying that we can do a lot at individual levels but but you know collectively make a difference and i think that's that's a very very important statement you just made um sarah i think we are almost coming to the end of the recording so maybe i'll i'll ask you one last question before i ask you uh, other things um so you mentioned th- your trajectory of going in from you know collecting the mosasaur vertebrae into looking at uh, extinction studies and now looking at um uh did you call it s- uh, sextinction was that was that the term you used extinction. yeah yes. sextinction so just imagine at the word the letter s in front of extinction sextinction i guess i guess my question my, my last question really um is what is your broad intellectual project uh, because i remember in some of the many walks that we've taken around sheffield by now um you've been talking about looking at animal studies as a new discipline of sorts uh, or maybe uh, correct me if i wrong if i'm wrong basically a new field of inquiry um with its own with its own ways of understanding the world and I guess that relates to what I'm asking really about what your broad intellectual project is um, and how you see that going forward. Within the humanities, extinction studies has kind of only really emerged in like, I think it was 2016, 2017 with the publication of extinction studies as an edited volume by the, the Australian extinction working group. But in terms of going forward, I think, the wider or larger trajectory of my work as I see it is connecting science and technology studies with eco-feminist approaches, which looks at the kind of combined oppression of nature and women and minorities, and also thinking about indigenous um, perspectives on things like de-extinction science. So my sextinction project is part of a, a wider project that looks at the sexual and gendered and settler colonial dimensions of de-extinction and offers kind of a critical framework for thinking about the ways in which de-extinction is kind of rooted in some male-dominated and settler colonial histories of animal exploitation. I want to I be critical about that. And I think as we go forward with extinction studies and as we think about the prospect of species revivalism, we need to consider what is at stake um, and what kinds of relationships we're setting up between the human and the animal. And as I think we sort of briefly talked about fantasies of the past earlier in our conversation, and I do think that that's very true with the woolly mammoth. There's a way in which bringing back the woolly mammoth is also about reviving prehistoric fantasies of the human and a and a kind of fantasy of the human that is separate from what it, the modern human is now. The, the woolly mammoth went extinct more than 4,000 years ago. So by bringing back the woolly mammoth, we're also kind of tapping into a certain kind of, a different kind of era, a different kind of moment in time where the human felt that it was itself, I guess, more connected with nature and with animals. And um, there's this brilliant artistic piece by Robbie Bush, B-U-S-H-E, if you want to look it up. It's called Neo-Neanderthals. Neo just meaning new. So this is a project around imagining these Neanderthal Neanderthal creatures in the future. And strangely enough, George Church himself has reflected upon possibly cloning Neanderthals and putting them into the uterus of a 
quote, extraordinarily adventurous female, end quote. It's an incredibly strange thing for him to say, and this is kind of why he kind of hedges around the borders of controversial. Um, and I, I think that that fantasy of of the human or of the, of the sort of a hominid species that preceded us is very much alive and at work within de-extinction imaginaries. And my job, I think, as an environmental humanities scholar is to connect with that and make, you know, make some critical judgments around what that actually implies about the prospect of de-extinction and whether or not that is a good thing for animals. I, I don't know if, you know, de-extinction candidates like, you know, the Pinta Island tortoise or the passenger pigeon, they're not alive to tell us if they want us to bring them back. And especially because we killed them in the first place. Um is there a place for them to be? And as you say, these environments have changed and is there a habitat for them to go back to? Is there a space for them to thrive and flourish? Half the battle is not only learning how to clone and synthetic use synthetic biology to revive these species, but actually to completely immerse them in those environments and those habitats in a way that makes them flourish. Otherwise, what are we doing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, um, Thanks so much, Sarah. Uh, before we close the recording, is there anything else that you'd like to mention about your work um, or about your interests that we've not touched upon in this uh, conversation? No, <laughs> I think we had a really good overview. You did such a good job of of connecting with the couple of articles that I have that are part that are coming out as a part of my my second book, and we've all, you've done a really good job as well of connecting with my first book. So I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for joining me, Sarah. This was a lot of fun. And yeah, I should, I should, I should interview a lot of my guests, my friends as guests sooner. Yeah, you should. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> it's nice to have these conversations without, you know, without worrying about, am I saying the right thing? Am I, am I being, yeah, whatever. But yeah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for listening, everyone. You can find more episodes as well as our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. In Common is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons.